Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer, and today we are talking about the most wholesome and family-friendly of topics, the law of blood. And the law of soil. And the law of investment, which is lesser known because governments don't like to tell people about it. At least the sort of people who won't be investing millions of dollars into your economy. Yeah, but come on. That's not really of relevance. Not really. That's not really to the point. But still, I suppose it's, it's a bit tacky, but that's about it. We've been getting a couple of uh, emails and things recently from people asking us to uh, explain what's happening with this. Because these two concepts are in the news kind of again uh, in the last while. So the concepts relate to how you attain citizenship in a country. Just solely means uh, law of the soil and just sanguinous which is law of the blood. And those are two ways of determining uh, who receives citizenship in a particular country. Now, this is back in the news because Labour are bringing forward a bill, or rather they've been bringing forward a bill for two years because it first came up in 2018, in order to amend the existing law so that it becomes easier for minors to uh, apply for citizenship in this country. Now, there are a couple of reasons why they think that's necessary, and it is relatively limited. But we want to just go through the concepts, why it was brought in, go back through some of what was said during the initial debate, and have a bit of a look at the stats um, from when it came in. So the Labour campaign is, like, I believe it's called Born Here, Belong Here. And it basically wants to work on the principle that any child born here should have uh, a just sully right, which is to say, because they were born here, they should be considered an Irish citizen. Now, not immediately. They need to be here for three years, but the Labour bill would remove any of the current restrictions in place. So currently, in order to apply for naturalisation, which is the process by which you become a citizen, if you are not one already, uh, a child or anyone who came here from abroad would need to live in the country for a particular length of time. In the case of adults, it's eight years. Now, there are certain limitations on how much of that time is actually counted. So if you are here illegally, it doesn't count. Or if you are here as an asylum seeker, that time doesn't count. Although time spent here as a refugee, if you are recognised, does count. So that would work retroactively, would it? I don't actually know. I suspect it might. It's kind of a metaphysical question. If you win your case and you're recognised as a refugee, that means you were always a refugee. So that any time you spent in this country, you spent as a refugee. But if you lose it, then you were never a refugee, so your time doesn't count. So I'm actually not sure of that, but I would suspect it is retroactive. Now, what Labour want to do is they want to remove some of the restrictions as it relates to minors. So let's say a minor is in the country illegally. That wouldn't count against them. Whereas currently, it would. You couldn't build up time for naturalisation if you were here illegally. Now, this was partially to deal with a case that happened with a Chinese boy. Um, who, I believe his parents... Um, I believe his parents were here on a student visa. And then his mother overstayed. And he was born here and he went to school. And uh, so that's basically the background to what's happening. Now, I don't know why it's come to a bit more public prominence the last while. you got to do something, Gary. You're on 3% in the opinion polls. You're Ireland's oldest political party. Yeah, but I've, I've, started, I've started hearing more mention of this in media. 
But there doesn't seem to be any particular... God, that's, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. The, the Labour Party wants to do something. It's their big policy push. And the media reported a lot. Oh, God, I, I'm, a, I'm baffled, Gary. It's, it's not like RTE and the general media would have more than 3% of their cohort being in the Labour Party or supporting the Labour Party. Or am I being excessively belaboredly cynical about that? No, I am not, said Gary. You're absolutely right, Michael. Have a chocolate. Now, I would point out that um, the current legislation, the legislation that was put in place after the 27th uh, Amendment, has massive range of ministerial discretion. Which we love. We're a big fan of that because we love our... Oh, this country loves ministerial discretion. And we do too because we're, we're, we have to recognise we have been extraordinarily lucky historically in the quality and competence of our ministers. So we think it's great that they have as much power as they need. So... Eric Ziying Zhu, who caused the writing of this bill. So so his his mother came in, tried to apply for leave, failed every time, had a child here during that period. And then after 12 years, she got a deportation order. And that applied to Eric as well, because he was you know, a Chinese citizen. Although it was slightly more difficult because he wasn't a Chinese citizen. He, he was effectively stateless, wasn't he? On the face of it. And he was... I'm sorry, Gary, I, I, I should remember the details, but was he, I thought he was here more than 12 years, he himself. No, he was nine. Was he nine? All right, sorry. I, I think there's another case. I'm thinking if there was a, a chap who was coming up to his leaving cert that was being deported also, if you remember that case. He, I think he I think come, had come into the state maybe as a babe in arms or something. But uh, so the boy was nine years old. He was born here, brought up here. He was on the face of it. Anybody who was talking to the child would say he was an Irish child. Now, my understanding is uh, China has a just sanguinous yes, law. Yes, it does. So I think what was actually happening is it was being reported as he didn't have Irish uh, Chinese citizenship. And that was technically true. But had he applied for Chinese citizenship he would have received it pretty much immediately. If the, yes, if the Chinese government wanted to give it to him. Well, if they have a just sanguinous law, then his mother was Chinese, so... If the government wanted to give it to him. Well, I mean, that's just a general rule with China. Yeah, exactly. And we don't... Yeah, China sometimes... Anything is the law, as, as long, long as the government... Yeah, as long as the party says it's okay. And she maybe was an undesirable person in the party, having fled the country. That's not a good thing in China going to live in foreign countries and things. They don't take that nicely sometimes. Yeah, so anyway, that, that was the way it was being reported in the media. It was a, it made a big thing of the fact he wasn't a Chinese citizen, which, one, I'm not entirely sure is true, and two, if it was true, under my understanding of Chinese law, because they have right of blood and his mother was Chinese, he would have just been given a Chinese citizenship and Chinese passport had the mother notified the Chinese government of his existence. But anyway, that, that didn't matter because Charlie Flanagan revoked the deportation order made in respect of Eric and probably by extension his mother because if you split up a family, it's a legal issue. Yes, and that's another part of the story in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, just, uh, just Sully is gone, but if you can have a child and you last a while and your child is sufficiently cute that the media actually might pay attention to them, you've got a very good chance of just having the deportation order waived. 
and allowed to stay in Ireland. Yeah, what? What? Some people, not all people, but some people believe in the concept of natural justice. Natural justice is a, an idea which is cert- was certainly very popular in Irish law through the eighties and nineties. And on the face of it, it did seem to be something fundamentally unfair about having a child here who'd lived in, born in the country, lived in it for nine years, knew other, knew other country, and then you were saying, okay, you have to get out. For me, the problem there wasn't so much, wasn't the, wasn't the law regarding citizenship in the country. The problem was the inefficiency of the immigration system. It shouldn't happen that somebody can be here for nine years. I, I'm not sure if I recorded it on Gripped or if we I recorded it before we went on to Gripped, but there was a, a episode where you weren't here and I recorded it entirely on why this child should be deported, which was, as you would imagine, Michael, an astronomically popular position I to take. I am sure. People hate children, particularly cute children. Yeah, and quite rightly. And they're, also, they're vectors of disease. They're noisy. There's all sorts of laws, again, what what kind of work they can do and they will do and they won't do, what you can do with them. They're fundamentally an economic drag. However, having said that, you know, I'm not anti-children, really. But I still think there's a principle of fairness. It, I, it wasn't the kids' fault that the Irish state and Irish bureaucracy is fundament, was so fundamentally flawed and inefficient in execution of its... Right. Now, you can make the point perfectly reasonably, Gary, that the law is the law. And if we don't apply the law, all you're doing is encouraging other people to come and try and subvert the law and use the gaps in the law and the compassion and the sympathy of the people in order to be able to get the, get your aim. And if you don't enforce the law, ultimately the law becomes an ass. The law of the, the laughing stock of the law becomes an ass and you can't have that because the law is an important thing. I think we'll just go back to the, these concepts a little bit before we, we move on into it. So we said you have just Sanguinus, the right of blood, or the law of blood, and you have just Sully, the right or law of soil. Now, there are different reasons for each of these. And an important note here is before sort of the modern world, neither of these concepts were terribly important for most places. It's Yeah, I think it's... It's not simply that they weren't important. They weren't. But it was also the, they wouldn't have been conceptualized in this way. If in pre in the pre modern world, if you were in France and you went to England, to at the point at which you stopped being an Englishman, you became a French. You were stopping a Frenchman, became an Englishman, whatever. It was but weirdly, it was kind of postmodern. It was a question of how you was you self identified, but. You you wanted you you wanted to leave Salonica and go and work in the ports in London. You went. You got off a boat. Nobody stopped you. Nobody checked for a passport. There were no passports, except for persons of very high stat- status and rank. And the purpose of that was passport that you should let the person pass. That you shouldn't interfere with them. And that would only apply to diplomats and to big important people. So our understanding of nationality, our standards, is completely different. So. This, these laws apply to a different, a completely different reality. It does. I mean, if you don't have high levels of travel between regions, and travel used to be far, far rarer, like long distance travel, until relatively into the modern world, you don't really have to have that much around citizenship because there are very few edge cases, or there are very few cases of people coming over. 
as migration becomes more common and as movement becomes more common, a more solid idea of who exactly is a citizen of this place becomes uh, slightly more. Now you do, in the ancient world, you do occasionally see laws that relate to this. So the Roman Empire tends to be empires that have laws on these places because they cover so much ground. So just Sanguinus comes pretty directly from Roman law. So if you were, if you had Roman parents and they had a child anywhere, you were Roman. Didn't, didn't matter. But I think that that's the clue to actually why these things existed and why they didn't, why they weren't necessary in, in even in later times. It's because if you were a Roman citizen, you, you acquired Roman citizen, you acquired benefits. And citizenship and the issue of nationality is really only important to the state when you're talking about somebody who can make demands upon the state. So it's in the world where you, the world, the post-welfare world, it becomes an issue. Until then, most states would have, remember, one thing you need to remember, you, you, states coming out of the, after classical antiquity, into the Middle Ages and right up in, in early modernity, populations were very stable. One of your problems, actually, was uh, population diminution. So if you got more people, that was a good thing. People liked having more population. More population meant more trade, more activity, more revenue, more wealth. Also, these people, new people, didn't make any demands in the state. They didn't have any rights in the state. The only thing that they may, may be that they couldn't do in different places, they wouldn't have, I say, they wouldn't have the privileges because there weren't really rights in the pre-modern world. They didn't have rights. There were there were privileges that would attach to certain in localities, maybe voting, but even vo but voting was such a restricted practice in England or in France or any of these places, and so attached to specific function functions, that it wasn't an issue. When you have a state like the Roman state or say the Greeks, where being a citizen actually gives you specific benefits, then it's an important question. But if you're in a state where there is no welfare system, and you as a wealth producer are a benefit to the state and the state doesn't have to give you anything well then citizenship is is not important to the state and that's but we now live very much in the welfare world i mean yes the welfare world made it significantly more important but you did run into it before in as i said the older empires were partially rights and partially responsibilities. the chinese would have had it certainly the japanese would have had it because again a question that only han chinese would have had certain rights within the empire and only pure Japanese would have had those rights again within, within the empire. So it's, a, it's interesting to look at the, the Roman Empire goes for just Sanguinus because, you know, it's about keeping Rome Roman. Yeah, but also how, how could you do it otherwise? Only people born, only people born in Rome. When actually, so when citizenship was something conferred also by, by the, the emperor or by the senate. So you could go to Narbonne and say, which is in the south of France and say, okay, which they did. We're making all the people in Narbonne citizens. So it was you could do it by leg legislative decree. Yeah, and you could get citizenship through service, and there, there were actually actually quite a ways. Half the population of Rome, or more than it was, were, were slaves. You couldn't have people just by simply by the fact of being born in the place becoming citizens, because then most of your citizens would be slaves. So in Rome, the system is designed so that as the empire expands. You can be a Roman citizen anywhere, and your children will be Rome, 
And also, if you are uh, in the conquered territory, you can apply for Roman citizenship. And if you get it, well, then your children will be Roman as well, and so on. You'll sometimes hear people uh, talk about the Roman ideal of um, of cultural superiority as, as a as a alternative to multiculturalism, because the Roman idea was that there's one culture, the Roman culture, but it wasn't based, it wasn't limited based on um, race, effectively. So you had black emperors because they were Roman, and you had white Italians try and take it and get totally rebuked because they weren't seen as sufficiently uh, Roman. But and it's a, that's an important point because I think it can be confusing sometimes when we talk about your language, you know, the, the law of, the, of blood, that that makes it sound like a racial or an ethnic thing, which it is in certain places. In Germanic countries, which have historically used this, it was essentially an ethnic or a racial way of of conferring citizenship. For the Romans, it wasn't. It simply meant that it was transmitted genetically from father to son. So you could, it was, so your, 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 if your father was a, a citizen, you became a citizen. But your father could be, like St. Paul was a citizen because he was from the city of Tarsus, but he was obviously ethnically not Roman. Most of the Gauls in the south of Gallia, Transalpina were, but you have people um, much closer to Rome that weren't citizens, but it wasn't an ethnic racial thing, it was a cultural thing. Yeah, I mean, that that's that's a thing brought up against just Sanguinus even nowadays, but and it can be used to keep a country of a particular ethnic composition, but in and of its own, it really depends what the other routes to citizenship are. So if there are no other routes to citizenship, yes, it would be quite limiting to people outside of the traditional makeup of that country. If, however, you go the Roman approach and there are a multitude of ways to acquire citizenship, and then once you acquire it, it's passed down your line, there is technically an, an ethnic dimension to it. But I think pointing it, painting it as racist or ethnically exclusive is not really... It's a very weak ethnicity thing, really. It's a very strong cultural thing. It's an investment in a cultural idea. And that's part of an ethnic... Of ethnicity is culture, but it's but it's 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 big on culture and law and race. So, you the other alternative would be the British Empire yeah. style. So the British Empire go for just solely. The British are really interesting. Reading some of the documents from the imperial period where they're talking about this and they're debating it, the British go for just solely because they want to bring as many people under the crown as possible. They want to increase the number of people in the empire. So therefore, if you have a just solely system and you conquer land, the people in there automatically become yes, citizens of the empire. So the British, the British can go, well, we've this amount of people in, and you know, it's fabulous. And it was effectively an imperial project, which is odd because just solely is usually presented as this lovely option that's very welcoming to everyone, and people tend to glaze over the fact that there is not a single European country that has unconditional just solely uh, births. Very few countries do. Anymore. There, all, there was one. Well, yes, there was There was one. It was us. And then we saw that there were a number of problems with unconditional just solely laws, particularly in an age of mass transit. Actually, the only country, the, the only, like, the major country that still has just solely is America. And Canada. Mm. One one important point to make, actually, is you can combine these two concepts. So you can have just solely, where anyone who 
unconditional just solely, where anyone who gives birth in your country on land that your country claims or on an airplane registered to your country, uh, their child is automatically your system, uh, citizen. But you can also have, you can combine that with a just sanguinous concept, whereas if a citizen from your country gives birth anywhere else, that child is still Irish or English or whatever. Which, which is what the Americans do, because if you're the child of a natural-born citizen, then you acquire citizenship. It can actually create a bit of a problem, because many countries don't allow dual citizenship. Yes. If you are from a just sanguinous country and you give birth in a just solely country, both countries will claim that citizenship. And if there's an issue there where one of them doesn't allow dual citizenship, it can actually get into a, a bit of a legal issue. The Americans technically don't allow dual citizenship, do they? Because a lot of Americans, for work reasons that came here, discovered their Irish roots and got passports. Uh, to live here or somewhere else in Europe. But I, 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 have, uh, I have a memory from a friend of mine in Italy who had it, who was it? Maybe it's the Italians, maybe it's the Americans, the Italians, that they had a, an issue with dual citizenship. I can't remember, but there was an issue. Anyway, and they, had to, they were kind of hiding their passports. Well, I think what actually happens in America is they just, they don't mention it and then they don't require you to relinquish citizenship when you get citizenship in america so it, it it i think it just doesn't explicitly mentions it it avoids it as it were they avoids it as a subject but the just solely yeah you're right i mean the sense people's romantic notion there are two reasons that the british in in, in the night particularly in the 19th century were particularly enthusiastic about one was more more people more money was the, the there was a bigger population was a bigger source both of uh, manufacturing but also potentially commodities. I mean, the United India was seen as potentially a massive market. But there was also the other thing. If you're a citizen, Gary, you have duties. And one of those duties is the def defence of the motherland. So, for example, First World War, Second World War, there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions, uh, of there's, I mean, the Indian Army would have been was was a, was a very significant military force, as part of the 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 Empire Army. The, obviously, famously, the Anzacs, the Australians, the New Zealanders, played a role in. Also, in Africa, you had native levies, as they would have called them. So there was a there was there was a there was an expectation that they would take up the take up the call to defend the motherland. Which also, for example, you in the West Indies, and many, many West Indian men, First, Second World War, fought either locally, were, were involved in the military either locally or came to Europe to fight. And when then they came and then expected that their, their loyalty to the motherland would be replayed when they, they decided to move home, as it were, back to the mother country in the 50s. And it was all... A little bit different than they expected, but it's worked out for many of them rather well enough. It is interesting that they took a concept which is generally in the modern age seen as you know, very lovely and very, it's there to prevent statelessness and just used it as a an imperial weapon. Because then you're a citizen, then you have to pay taxes, then you had expectations upon you. 
I, I do love the idea of someone saying to the British, there could be no taxation without representation, and just looking slowly at a map of <laughs> India. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see. Although most of the taxation would have been local. And you know what? As regards the, as regards the thing, the empire, and certainly by the time you're getting towards the end of the 19th century, the empire was a cost on Britain rather than anything else. And if it, along with the First World War, was responsible for the definitive transition uh, from Britain to the United States of the position of world's most important economic power, most important industrial power, military power, etc. By the time you're looking at sort of the, the, the tail end of the colonization of Africa, of Africa, you're looking at significant transfers happening the other way. So, you know, empires are funny things. They very often you end up with a situation where a country ends up with an empire that they hadn't really planned on having a few years previously. Like saying the case with the scramble for Africa, there was a sense of well, we have to have some because we're Britain and we're you know we we can't have. We can't be standing around with nothing when all the other people have been nice and have nice colonies and big empires. We have to have an empire too. Yeah, I mean, that's what the Dutch thought. And that just went pearly for everyone. Well, it didn't talk that badly for the Dutch royal family and from other people. I mean, let's face it. Royal Dutch, royal Dutch Shell, for a Burma, they had a, that the oil out of that it made people some very rich. They, they made a lot of rubber got a lot of rubber out of the East Indies, which made people, some people, very wealthy indeed. I, nobody knows how much any of the royal families are worth, but there's a, a suspicion that the Dutch royal family, well, we know, we know, it is reported that they still own significant shareholdings in Shell, which ain't bad, and other oil companies. So that, that starts in the Dutch East Indies. That is, those are the two concepts. In the modern world, just solely kind of comes from the British. Just Sanguinus in the modern world comes more from France, at least as they've spread since that time. Well, yeah, and the French comes from Roman law because French Napoleonic law is essentially a codification of Roman law. So there's, there's that's where you effectively both imperial concepts because, as I said before, in the modern age, empires were really the only sort of people who had to worry about this sort of thing because... Most uh, localities, you were never going to move around far enough for this to be an issue. Yeah, when it was yeah to an extent. I mean, I think we have, to an extent, in we we underestimate the degree to which people moved to say in the Middle Ages. We it, certain groups moved a lot. We know, for example, Masons in the Middle period. You had a lot of movement of Masons between England, between France, in north of Italy, Germany, the Low Countries, who were involved in the building of cathedrals. They moved, they came and they went. But it wasn't marked upon, whatever. It wasn't considered to be an odd thing. Now, every so often you have a mass movement and people go, oh, gosh, that happened. Like, for example, uh, after the the movement of the Palatines in the early 1700s, like 1710, you got the the Protestant Palatines who move out of the Rhineland and they arrive, but in comparison to modern movements, you're talking about a few thousand people, 20,000, 30,000 people. Before that, the arrival of the Huguenots, again, in a kind of a lump. 
uh, later on, Eastern European Jews, if we're talking about, say, Britain, mm. and to an extent Ireland, I mean, Ireland never had a big Jewish community, but what community it had arrived sometimes at the end of the 19th century, mostly from Lithuania. You, you do make a good point there. there. There was a surprising amount of movement, or at least more than perhaps what I've been saying would give you the idea for, but it wasn't large-scale migration, and it tended, when you look at how people were considered, to really just depend upon how they identified themselves. And also, and then sometimes you just had countries saying, please, come in. Like, Poland becomes the centre for uh, for a Jewish, a large Jewish community, particularly around Krakow, because King Kazimir, for example, says uh, there are other parts of Europe where they're, in, they're instituting very strong anti-Semitic laws. And Kazimir says, well, this is... I like these people. These are, they're literate, they're, they're competent, they're capable, they're tradesmen, they're artisans. They, I want them. And so they would invite them. So you get, you, get, you, you get movements. Other places they wanted Saxons because they were good at mining and at stonework. And they, so you end up in Bosnia because they're invited in. If you carried, a, if you had a skill, if you had a capacity, people, you were ha- people were happy to let you in as long as you, because also, the other thing is, and which I suppose we have we haven't mentioned at all, we for, because it's something we have forgotten culturally is that in the pre-modern world, while there were ideas of being from a place, there was a, an overarching notion of Christendom. We were all part of Christendom if you were a Christen, you know. So if you were from England, Scotland, Ireland, whatever, as long as you were moving within Christendom, and obviously you weren't Jewish. Then to you, there was a sense of that shared commonality, uh, and the, the strength of divisions. The, the, that sense of national identity is something that only develops in sort of late medieval periods in places like Spain, in France, uh, in England. Although some people would argue that actually the Irish have a very ancient notion of nationality, but we won't get into that. So we'll get on to the to the Twenty Seventh Amendment in a, a minute. Because there's actually, the 27th Amendment was pretty directly caused by a a case that went to the European Court of Justice involving Chinese couple who specifically chose to have a child in Northern Ireland in order to acquire Irish nationality so that they could then go through to the EU. And it became a whole legal issue. I think it was the, the Chen v. the Home Secretary was the case. But just before we touch on that, there are pros and cons to either of these options. In kind of the modern world, most countries have just gone to just Sanguinis because that seems to make most sense. People move around a lot more, but it doesn't doesn't really make sense if you go on holiday and you have a child abroad that that child is suddenly, you know, American but not Irish. Mm-hmm. So most countries, bar America, Canada, and a couple of South American countries, and I think one or two in Africa. I've just said that, well, obviously your nationality is somewhat of an accident of birth, but just Sanguinus minimizes the accident of birth in that you don't have to care what the nationality of a ship you are on, what flag it is under, if you give birth on a ship is, because that just seems silly. Yes. However, the argument against just Sanguinus and for just solely is that no one is stateless if just solely is a thing. I suppose unless you give birth in international waters, but that's still relatively rare. Then you'll be, you belong to the god Poseidon. 
It should say so on your passport. It's probably Greek citizenship, then. <laughs> probably, yeah, Greek. You might be able to swing Italian if you can, you know, you can give a, a full explanation of the Greek and Roman gods' connections. But uh, I'm not sure how many children could pull that off. I'm, I'm going for Neptune. Why not Poseidon? Poseidon's a lovely god. No, I like Neptune. Yeah, also, then, there's the issue of people who were born in space, Gary, which I know you're a specialist on. Yeah, actually, it was quite interesting when I was looking up documents on this. One of the uh, one of the people who seem to do the most work on this are uh, space lawyers. <laughs> no, 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 no. You can't just... You can't... You know perfectly what you're doing. Space lawyers. Lawyers who specialize in... They're not space... It's like space cowboy. <laughs> What's your job? I'm a space lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> you know perfectly right now everybody is out there imagining people somewhere out in the, in the International Space Station floating around in the whole suit <laughs> making notes and saying send in my name send to the next person please space lawyer one of the astronauts looks out of the uh, International Space Station a briefcase just floats by yeah but it is a concern there because you know, what happens if someone gives birth in space? And under just solely, you belong to the void. Well, you know what, Gary? The truth is, we all belong to the void. It sounds like something I would say. Yeah, well, it's Sunday. It's my spiritual day. So we've started to hear people kind of pushing more just solely uh, side of things. But just solely had several significant issues especially unconditional just solely, which is simply if someone gives birth uh, in a country, then they uh, that child has citizenship. That led to the concept of the anchor baby, which you still hear about in America and in South America and in Canada, and we had heard about in Ireland, and that is where a woman who is heavily pregnant will come to a country and give birth there, knowing that because the child is a citizen, that they won't be deported because to do so would be to break apart a family. It was. It's funny, isn't it, the way these things are done? The people who were opposed to the amendment, and I was one of them, but for other reasons. Uh, one of the, one of the things they did was they they very successfully poo pooed, not before, but I think afterwards and since then, the notion that there were actually lots of women coming to the country and who were pregnant and were coming here to have an anchor baby. And it, it became this thing, where, oh, that was just an urban myth. As, it, as several people would say to me, it turned out that apparently, you know, which is it's always fun when somebody says it turns out, it turned out that this wasn't happening at all. Well, you know what, Gary? If it wasn't happening, then that means that the master of the National Maternity Hospital was telling porkies because that was the source of the a lot of the comment. It was not just the master of the Hollow Street, but all of the masters of the Hollow Street, the Coombe and the Rotunda. Yeah, so I, this is the thing. When people look at back at it now, they say, well, that didn't happen. That was a, an absolutely ridiculous, racist thing. But when you go back and you look at the material from the time, there are masters of at least three maternity hospitals in Dublin. And Dublin seems to have been the, naturally enough, the centre for this, this, that's where they, that, also that, 
And it's also probably just where they did, where they counted. So saying that they were seeing a large increase in women who were presenting at a very late stage of pregnancy that they had never seen before, that they had never had a, a chance to talk with. You might wonder why the masters of maternity hospitals were telling politicians that. It wasn't because they cared about immigration policy. It was because they were saying that this is a threat to the life of women. Because you should not be flying if you were that heavily pregnant. At one stage, in, in one interview, uh, D- uh, Dr. Keane f- from Hollis Street said that he had recently seen uh, two cases, where one, in one case where a woman had delivered at Dublin Port and the other had delivered in an ambulance coming from the airport. And the quote here is, these women were obviously in labour when they got on the aeroplane or the ferry and disguised their distress. If Irish women are asked for a letter from their doctor before they get on a plane, how can women from Lagos get on a plane at 40 weeks? He said, I feel it will take an accident or a death for travel companies to respond to the issue. That was that was something that was brought up at the time, that this wasn't just an, an issue where people were choosing to do that. It was an issue of people being coerced to do that in order to get citizenship for the wider family. So women were being forced to do this because then they could bring over some of their family members. But the real problem for people who say that that didn't happen and that's just a racist thing is the Chen v. Home Secretary case, which was a European Court of Justice case. And what happened was there were two, there were Chinese parents who were living in Wales and working for a Chinese firm there. Now, they were not permanent residents. They were temporary mm-hmm. residents. And under British law at the time, if they had a child, she wouldn't be a British citizen. She would be... Uh, a Chinese citizen and would just be there temporarily as well. So the mother deliberately chose to go to Northern Ireland and have her child there because then she could claim Irish nationality. Okay, right, yes. And then, because she had Irish nationality, then they had EU. They were they were a EU citizen. So when the child received citizenship and a passport the family, the Chen family, then used that EU uh, citizenship to move permanently to Wales. So, But the British authorities rejected the family's applications. They said, no, this is obviously an immigration scam. You can't, you can't just do this. So it went all the way to the European court. And the European court ruled that they had a right uh, under Article 18 of uh, the Treaty of Rome to reside anywhere in the EU because they were EU, uh, because the the daughter had a right, because she was an EU citizen, and therefore the parents had to go with her because she could not look after herself because she was a child. So because the daughter had citizenship, she could stay anywhere in the EU, which meant the parents, by extension, could stay permanently anywhere in the EU. Now, at the time, the European Court of Justice basically said, well, you know, because they were asked, is it was this abuse or was this something of that nature? And they said, no, it's not, because it's not up to the EU to tell any member state what immigration policies they can have. Ireland has chosen to have this immigration policy, and therefore this is perfectly fine. Except, of course, if you're talking about Ireland and the nationality thing in the north, it wasn't actually an immigration policy. It was... It, 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 and that's one of the things that has complicated the thing in the north is the, the, the Good Friday Agreement. Mm. So that was that was decided that was decided in two thousand and four, and that case 
became sort of a central component of it because it was pointed out then that Ireland had unconditional just solely. None of your parents had to be Irish. You just needed to be born here. We were seeing increases in numbers of pregnant women from various parts of the world, from China to Africa. And then you had this case where people were able to go, like, this is someone openly saying this is what they did. Surely that is an issue. What year was this, the king, the, that, the, that case? Uh, so the child was born in 2000. And by the time the European Court of Justice had decided it, it was 2004, uh, October of 2004. But even before then, I mean, in 2002, 15% of all the deliveries in Dublin were to non-nationals. In 2003, 20% of uh, deliveries were to non-nationals. Now, non-nationals, precisely what that meant, uh, is on. I, we don't is, is unclear because we we're also talking about say a time when we had a large number of a, of, a, of a relatively young Polish population here. So, But there was a significant number, supposedly a not insignificant number of, of non-Europeans. The, in, a, in a quote from the time, based on the number of deliveries in the first six months, the three maternity hospitals estimate around 6,000 non-national women will give birth this year. That is enough for a large maternity hospital in Europe. And if the levels continue, we will need a fourth maternity hospital in Dublin to cope with the demand. I suppose that that was an important point about the, the 27th Amendment. We were the only country that had this rule, which meant that if anyone wanted to gain EU citizenship and be allowed to move around the EU as they will with their parents, all they had to do was be born in Ireland. And only Ireland. And that really is the key to this. It's the, To me, anyway, this is not a question, ultimately, about solving a particular problem in Ireland, but rather this is one of the consequences. This is a problem which, is, which becomes more problematic as a consequence of our membership of the EU and free movement and all the other rights that you acquire as being a citizen of the EU. It's just I, how feasible it is to have an absolute right of your uh, story when you're the only one in the EU that has it. And there are so many people who want to acquire EU citizenship. and have. I know it sounds ridiculous, but Pew, and Pew is pretty respectable. I mean, it's as respectable as it comes on these things. Pew has estimated just small numbers. Between one and two billion people would live in the EU uh, who don't, if they could. So you might see why this would become an increasing issue following a period where flights and uh, global movement became very, very cheap, thanks to the fine work of Ryanair, mostly. Hooray! I know. But that actually brings us to one of the the major issues with just solely. You can have people who gain citizenship of a country, who have no connection to the country, know very little about the country, have no desire to stay in the country, but just happened to be in the country at the time for any reason, because there's no limitations on it, or there were no limitations on it. And that just seems, I mean, to me, that just seems like a devaluation of citizenship. And so I would tend to go for the just sanguinous route with 
various ways of then becoming an Irish citizen if you so wish and are found to be of you know good enough character and things of that nature. Whereas just solely just seems kind of messy, archaic, and pointless if your no, aim is to keep citizenship valuable. You see, I'm not, I'm not massively convinced that citizenship should be valuable. I mean, to me, that's rather the point. I think citizenship should be ultimately a symbolic thing. The problem is not the citizenship or the law. The problem is that we have made it valuable in the same way as we have made licenses to drive a taxi in Dublin valuable. It's an artificial value which has been created by a government government regulation which either creates artificial scarcity or by internal transfers makes you uh, gives you the right for to for to receive subsidies and wealth transfers it depends what you mean by valuable because there's financial value which is not the type of value i'm referring to well value or or, or political or whatever i like i i always liked the idea of solely um it seemed to me to be consonant with the irish legal traditions uh, including pre-modern and well modern pre-modern brown laws but in the context of a world where we have very extensive welfare state where we and probably more importantly a series of legal obligations and relationships with another what is it the number these days since is it 27 26 other european countries I don't know whether it's feasible or sensible to have an absolute unqualified right like that. I think it probably doesn't make, it's not practicable. But I think it would, I think generally speaking better if, it, if there weren't the benefits that came with being a citizen other than having a passport that made, allowed you to go around the place. And I recognise that these days I do actually want people to be checked before they get on aeroplanes. I think I, I would be a little bit more uh, pro just solely if I didn't get the sense that when people like Labour are talking about it, that they actually want it because they want there to be effectively no immigration control. Yes, I think I agree with you that this is a, this is a Trojan horse. Effectively, it's to it's to diminish the 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 the. the, the the capacity to control borders. Yeah, I think you see that in that all the cases they bring up are of people who illegally entered the country and then built yeah. a life here. And they say, well, yeah. it would be cruel for us to remove them. And to me, whether or not it's cruel is, is not really a consideration. I think it is a fundamental right of the people of a state to control who lives and who is recognised within that state. And if they want to make it very broad... Fair. If they want to make it narrow, that's their choice because the country is theirs. And so all of this I just see as a sort of, well, people shouldn't have the right to make this decision and anyone should be allowed to stay anywhere. And I, I just, I, I think that's frankly undemocratic. I think it's, yeah, fine. It's the, the right of the people to make the decision. I think what's more important in a sense here, practically speaking, it's also the duty of the state to effectively execute and enforce the laws of the state. And it doesn't do, it just does not do this. We are, and we've talked about this before, we are not fans in any way, shape or form 
of direct provision. It's a nasty, brutish, cruel kind of a thing to do. But the, the answer to the solution of Brexit is, is speed the process up. Port those who fail. Deport those who fail. Uh, it, it seems to be the part we are sort of struggling with. Well, we are, we aren't. I mean, if you come from Georgia or Armenia, they will deport you immediately. Surprising amount of people from very safe countries applying for asylum. But, I, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I, I was saying that that Chinese boy should be deported. Because if you're not going to apply the law to any great deal, you need to try and make examples to stop people from applying in the first place. Yeah... I'm not keen on the notion of the law making examples. I don't think that's well, the first Well, the problem there law. is that if we're just not going to apply the law, it becomes very important to minimise the amount of people who try. I absolutely, I, I, I understand your point and I take your point. My, my problem is, if, my problem with my own point is this. I think it was a failure of the government and the failure of the bureaucracy and a failure of will, perhaps, which led to the, this child being in the country for nine years. Mm. My sense about it ultimately was the government has failed the law here and it has now reached a point where it would be grossly unfair because this child is, to my eyes, ultimate, is, is an Irish child. It would be unfair to send this child away. However, I would say that only on the basis that from now on, all the boys and girls will be good and all of the laws will be assiduously enforced and properly followed up on. Now, the reality is, I know in my heart that that's, not sim that's simply not true. And that will just be an endless iteration and reiteration of cases like this. And every time we will say, yes, well, it's unfortunate the laws failed and it will be, but it would be cruel. And it would be cruel. But I suppose I take your point, but I will allow you to enforce it so I can keep my hands and my conscience clean. Yeah, I mean, I would perfectly agree with you that it would not have been in that child's best interest to deport them. I'm just saying it should have happened anyway. No, I'm not, I'm not saying it's just simply not in the best interest. I think there was also, I think it would also, there was an, there's, there's an element that it would be unjust. Well, there's also an element that you shouldn't profit from your crimes. Yeah, but it wasn't his crime. It was, it was his, his mother's, mother's crime. Crimes. And his mother, when he was allowed to stay, would also have been allowed to stay. You have perverse outcomes sometimes. That's the nature of... Do, do, you, remember, do you remember when the, we first started seeing migrants cross over from Libya? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, that's the worst example of perverse incentives. It is the worst, I mean, in the most terrible example of per perverse incentives. For those who aren't aware of this or have forgotten it, when we had those issues of migrants drowning, crossing over from Libya, largely allowed because Gaddafi had been stopping that sort of thing from happening, I would suspect because the EU was bribing them. Oh, they're bumming them, no, no doubt. The EU and, this, and the Americans. Yeah, when he fell because of the Americans... Largely. Thank you, Obama and Clinton. Yeah, I saw someone the other day say that Obama had a scandal-free presidency, <laughs> which is one of those things where if it's true, it's more damning than if it isn't, because a scandal is the media deciding to make something of something. And there were many, many things they could have made something, and if they didn't make any of them... Benghazi? Benghazi, Libya. The, the, murder, the murder of an... Um, American ambassador under your tenure? The absolute crackdown on whistleblowers? The, the, the assassination of American citizens? That outside tan suit? By, oh, the tan suit. Yeah. 
I, I do, I do, I really love when the Democrats stand up and say, well, the only thing they ever said about him was that tan suit. I didn't mind the tan suit. I minded destabilizing Libya and killing millions of people. And not just Libya. I mean, let's face it. Leading fairly directly to the migrant crisis and many, many things. And But anyway. So anyway, so what happens is you have this migrant crisis which had been controlled under Gaddafi. Not in a very pleasant way, but it had been controlled by Gaddafi. Now we're back again with the situation where we have all of these boats in the water. And it's a forum, I don't think, that, I'm sure that the poor Christ migrants don't think of it like this, but it's a form of um, suicide blackmail, you know? You know that the, 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 the teenager says, if you don't do this, I'll kill myself. There's an element of that with this because these are, they go into the water and very often they sink. You have to pick us up or, or you have to you have to allow them in or we will die. And uh, there was a very interesting case, which I think we discussed it at the time, where a court found that, uh, the Italian court found that the you didn't have to offer, the nearest port did not have to offer succor or accept boats carrying refugees, but rather that they should apply to the country under which the flag was registered. And in this particular case, that would have been Germany. But it would have been a bit of a trip from the Mediterranean up, up to Hamburg or to Bremen. Bremen. So we have essentially done a pride, an incentive for people to risk their lives crossing the sea because the law is not enforced at the other side well it's not even that it's that by actively pulling people out of the water by saving people's lives we made the crossing more palatable well now gary no it's not that by taking them out of the water and then bringing them to europe no even just taking them out of the water and bringing them back to libya even when they did just that that still changed the behavior of the people smugglers. So what they started doing at that point is they moved from uh, more seaworthy boats to like inflatable dinghies and things like that, knowing that at the worst, those people would be pulled out of the water and brought back. But, uh, but, but yeah, Gary, but don't forget that there was the act of complicity of voluntary organizations here, because when they started using the, the increasing, when they stopped actually trying to evade capture, they moved into a situation where they actually, they deliberately tried to be caught in a sense, where they would, where they were going, where they gave their coordinates to specific, so these, to these ships of these, of these NGOs on, on other organizations. So they knew where they were going to go down and they would pick them up. So now they're on boats, German boats, French boats, whatever, and who and they who brought them directly to Lampedusa. So there's been a bit of research on this and the British government have looked at this as well. And basically what happened is that by putting more effort into saving people's lives, we killed more people because there were more crossings. Yes. And let's say before you had said 50%. If you can keep, save 75%, but crossings go up 400%, you're still letting more people die. And that's, that's what happened. So the people smugglers no longer needed to get to Italy and then get back. So what they started doing was they switched to kind of flimsier and flimsier boats and then inflatable rafts. And then they stopped going themselves in the crossing. They would just point the migrants and go. 
So it started becoming quite uh, quite fine if they died. Or- members of organized crime, the Mafia and the Camorra, they can be surprisingly unprincipled and unethical in the way that they treat their customers. I mean, I know that would surprise and horrify people out there, but sometimes members of organized crime and mafia families when they're, who are in the business of smuggling people across the mountain don't really care if they survive or not as long as they've been paid. Now, sometimes they care because they're only going to get paid because they get when they get into Italy, they get in, they're into a form of indentured servitude in illegal factories and stuff like that. A lot of time these people have paid up front. And once they've paid, you know, Gary, they're not awfully invested in whether or not they live. Are you shocked by that? I know you are. You thought you thought the Italian organized crime families were, were more caring than that. But anyway, so, so search and rescue operations in the region, uh, which Ireland were involved in and everyone were lovely, oh, you yes. know, were so heroic. Hooray, killed, hooray. Killed more people than it saved. Yes. But the problem there is, in order to drive those numbers down, you would have to make the explicit choice to let people drown. And Western countries are not good about that choice. So if you go, okay, if you let these people drown, you're responsible. But overall, yeah. there will be less human suffering. Or you can do what makes you feel really good. Yeah. And millions more people will, you know, be displaced or die because... Now the crossing is easier and there's less incentive to make sure that the vessels they're on can actually make it. And yeah, there'll probably be a massive increase in human suffering and death. But, um, you know, it'll make you feel good about yourself. And so we go for that. One of the constant themes, and I I don't want to get into an argument about migration or here. That's not really the point. But... One of the constants that you hear from people who are far more open border people, let it all hang out, is that people on the right wildly overestimate the number of people. Oh, they're paranoid. It's scaremongering. The number of people that want to come here, it's just, this is nonsense. We, it'll be manageable. It'll be easy. It'll be controllable. Do you remember the palpable sense of, oh, fuck, what have we done? When Germany opened the border for one day under Frau Merkel. Yeah. And the numbers, when they saw the numbers coming, and then 24 hours, was it 20, was it 24 hours later? Shut the doors, shut the doors. I, I'll give you, I'll give you a good example of this because people in Europe do not understand the drive to a better life that can be achieved in most of the world if you could get access to the Western world. People in Europe don't understand how fucking good they have it. No, they don't. But I, I'll give you an example. Do you remember, it was a, it was a boy called Alan Kurdi. Uh, the, the famous photo of him, he was three years old, lying dead face down on a beach. Oh, in the, Turkey, in the Turkish crossing. Yes, yes. Horrible. Yeah. Hor- horrible story when you found out what the story really was. Do you know, so they've been through a number of countries. Do you know why they were making that particular crossing? Why? Or, sorry, why they were making that particular crossing? Yeah. Um, it's something to do with his father, wasn't it? I can't remember. No, you have to remind me. So they were in, they'd gone through Turkey. Yeah. So according to one of the Australian senators, they were trying to get to not just Europe, but Canada 
for dental treatment. Right. Dental specific. That's pretty specific. Yeah, and because I remember when that happened, people were like, no one would risk the life of their children for anything but, you know, the most grievous flight from death and despair. Like, I don't think you realise what most of the world is like. Also, death and despair. They'd been in, that particular family had been living in an apartment in, I think, somewhere like Izmir or Dennis in Turkey for more than a year. I mean, there, it wasn't... I mean, I know that when the, the hen parties go out for long weekends to Dennis, it's probably not that nice, but it's not exactly war-torn, war-torn Syria. Uh, yeah, but that, 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 that story was grossly manipulated. I, I'm, I think an important point here is there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing something to increase the quality of life of your family. No. Now, I would say don't do it if it's illegal, but the drive, I think, is in many ways laudable. But what I don't think people understand is how bad a lot of the world is in relation to Western Europe. And also, to say somebody is an economic migrant is not to say something bad. I mean, it, it is very often to say something complimentary and laudable, of course. If you're one of those people that gets up and does it and endures I'm sure not considerable hardship and and discomfort to get to there. I mean, you're probably kind of a get-up-go kind of person that a country or an economy might want. But a, a mutual friend of ours has a number of friends in Egypt, right? Mm. And it's a constant subject they talk about that people in their 20s and 30s who have any kind of education or any kind of qualification, they, they said everybody wants to leave Egypt. That since, well, really since Mubarak and the and the the exit of Mubarak and the the level of corruption, the decline in the quality of the services, the state of the economy is just savage. And Egypt, Egypt is not bad in comparison to lots of places. I mean, in comparison to Somalia, Egypt is not too bad. In, in comparison, there are there. There are places where the levels of poverty, the levels of misery are so low that people have no understanding. We, we, we are incredibly ungrateful people. We are a resentful, ungrateful population in Europe with no capacity, I think. No real... They talk about empathy and all that. If these people are genuinely empathetic or sympathetic, they'd have a sense of the kind of lives that people are living in these countries. I would, if you were to listen to some of these guys, if there was an open pathway tomorrow, 50 million Egyptians would be in Europe. And I, you know, I have nothing against Egyptians. I mean, to be silly about it, half the pizzaiola in Italy these days are Egyptians, and they make very fine pizza. I'm sure they're fine people, hard workers, decent, but that's not the point. That death, the <clears throat> death of that child, whether it was for dental care, as some of the Australian senators claimed, or whether it was for another reason, very much highlights the danger of empathy in discussions like this. Because people talk about empathy as if it's this unfiltered good. problem with empathy is that empathy is very visually 
driven. We have stronger empathy for those we can see, those who are closest to us, those who are most likely to us, and those whose plights seem particularly emotive. So the problem there is you have one child dies on a beach and you get a terrible photograph and you get moved to do things because of that that lead to other deaths. But because you don't see the other deaths, because they are not as widely promoted, because they are not as visceral or as visual, empathy tells you you have done the right thing. And it moves you to do that thing. And the problem with empathy, despite in many cases being a virtue, is that you can do terrible things as long as the results are distant. And that's, I think, what we see here. The, The reports have been pretty clear that the uptick in pulling people out of the Mediterranean led to more people dying in the Mediterranean overall. Mm-hmm. But you know, we saw terrible images and we acted. And the fact that we caused more of it, if anything, just made us go, well, we've got to do even more of this now. Sacralizing empathy as, the, as, the, as, as a virtue, I think, is, a, is a, an unwise and dangerous thing to do anyway. I'm, I'm not convinced uh, at this the overarching and untainted quality of empathy as a virtue. I can't remember who it was, but prominent psychologist I remember giving a talk I saw all year or so ago talking specifically about empathy and the dangers of empathy and the dangers of empathy at a, at a social level certainly are not in are, are, are significant you have to be very careful about empathy empathy can bring you one way but it can just as easily bring you another and in this case it's not cert- it's, it's certainly not leading to I would say sound policy decisions. No, that just brings on to Labour and why Labour are trying to change this. I mean, technically, the 27th Amendment just said that um, there would be no automatic birthright citizenship and then made point about provisions in law determining the exact scope of certain parts of it. So it's it's technically not against... It's not against the letter of 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 the amendment for... Labour to be pushing this. Maybe against the spirit of it, and uh, what was it? It was 79.17% people were in favour of the um, the 27th Amendment in 2005. But, I mean, perfectly within their right to push it forward. I think the language they are using, where they're openly saying that this was racist, this was xenophobic, I, I I don't find compelling. I'm not even sure if they find it compelling. Well, I tell you, compelling or not, it's a. I, I would not take care if I would give them a little piece of advice. I think it's a very bad argument. If you're going to tell people, you know, what you should do now, you should stop being the nasty xenophobic bigot that you are, and you should be more like us. I don't think that people hear that well. No, I mean, I was I was reading a piece that uh, Ivana Bacic did in the journal. Well done. Uh, yeah, I know. This this year. And it contained this line, which I thought was interesting. Now two children born side by side in an Irish hospital are no longer to be cherished equally, as was envisaged by the authors of the proclamation. <laughs> is that is that what the authors of the proclamation envisaged? <laughs> Very forward thinking as regards uh, Chinese immigrants. But it it's a very weird thing in that it seems to say that the value of a child is determined by its citizenship. I mean, if I and my partner went abroad 
when she was pregnant and the child was born early in Greece or you know, anywhere Delicious. in the world. And there was another child from a, a Greece or a Grecian uh, couple. I wouldn't think that my own child, well, one, I wouldn't think my child deserved Grecian citizenship to begin with, because that just seems silly. And two, I wouldn't have thought my child was less valuable for not having Grecian citizenship. It just seems an odd... You keep saying uh, Grecian, and I find it very hard to take you seriously when you say Grecian. I know. Can you not just say Greek? No, it's one of your tics I've noted, and I enjoy poking it occasionally. <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 if someone comes to Ireland and has a child here, does that... The idea that their child is is, is cannot be cherished equally because it doesn't have Irish citizenship, I find bizarre and weirdly in and of itself slightly xenophobic no I, I i take their point but i would just simply say that they haven't thought it quite through that in that circumstance what we actually need is a tagging system so that maybe like you put a, a a yellow or a or a pink tag in the child's ear so that we know the child is not a citizen because otherwise i think you're running the risk that people would treat the child exactly the same as an Irish citizen child. And obviously, that's not what they, they envisage because we, they, they say that otherwise, you know, if we had equality of cherishing, you know, that, that, that isn't what it's about. We need to be able to identify, oh, look, that child, not an Irish child, don't cherish that child equally. Cherish it up to around 90% of how you cherish an Irish child, but not up to, because otherwise you just spoil them and then they want to stay. Mm. I mean, one I have enjoyed one of Labour's lines is that uh, polling shows that 71% of Irish voters believe that anyone born in Ireland shouldn't be entitled to citizenship. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, oh, I've, I've conducted enough polling or I've paid for enough polling to be conducted that I have to go. I wonder how that relates to Irish people's actual views on the political matter. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that. I think that you could imagine how that question was uh, asked, that it, it was going to produce one answer and one answer only. However, when it, when you actually put... Do we get to just continuously rerun the referendum? I mean, it was 79%. Well, they, don't want to, they don't want to rerun the referendum because I would suspect... But they want, yeah, but what they want to do is essentially do... A, what's the phrase? A, a run around... They want to, yeah, they don't want to run the referendum. They want to run around the referendum. So they, they basically... Yeah, they undermine it. I mean, we know, and as I say, I didn't vote for it. I, I, I maintained my unbroken run of never having voted for the winning side in a referendum until the abolition of the Shannon. That's my only victory. And that was not... Well, what was, a victory that was, Michael. Oh, wasn't it? That was such a victory. And, and by such a large margin as well. I, I find this debate interesting, particularly when Labour are talking about it, because they talk and then I stand there and just go, and... So what? Like what? What's your point? I, yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's necessarily cynical. I think the point is, Labour are kind of, they're looking for a voice. They're looking for some unique selling point, something that they can market that brings them out of the pack, that makes them not the Greens, not left wing Fine Gael, not the Social Democrats not any of the other conglomeration on the left. And they think that this is the way to go. I think they're wrong. I mean, just from the politics of it. I don't think this is something that people care about particularly. I don't even think that it's something that 
center left upper middle class people air about particularly so much so that it's going to animate them into action it is possible that they've made the old classical favor where they do polling and people say they care and you yeah. go oh well, the public is largely in favor how much do you care yeah you don't you don't actually get intensity of caring so everyone is yeah maybe but yeah. no one actually cares that much and no, although no. i do know i do know some people who very much care about this but they're they're going to vote for Labour, the Social Democrats, anyway. They're not going to vote for even Sinn Féin. They'll go for, like, people before profit, Social Democrats, Labour. Anyway, you're not pulling mm. in anyone new. No. It's, I think that it's, it's, it looks like something good to go on, and they've gone for it, but I, 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 I don't see them getting a lot of traction. Or, or, no, or I, mean, I, I can see them trying, and... It's interesting to see them do this. I, I'm, I am interested to see why it's in the media so much more now. Because Labour brought this bill in in 2018. And I'll put a link to the to the Shannon debates that happened with it. Uh, it's interesting in that Michael McDowell, who was Minister for Justice at the time, does stand up and say that, you know, I, I see you all saying that, you know, these things didn't happen, but I personally met with the Masters of Maternity Hospitals or sorry, the master maternity hospitals made representations to the government to say it was it was happening and it was totally untenable. So, you know, you can say what you want now, but it happened and I was there. Mm. I, I don't know. I, I think that... He's also not hostile to the bill. No, he's not. No. He might have been a couple of years ago, but uh, he's a different man now. Oh. Modern, progressive Ireland. He's a softer, kinder Michael McDowell. Mm. Isn't that what everyone wanted? Well, that's what we all are, really. We're all sort of kinder people. I think just just to close, Michael, I've never been terribly fond of just solely. Because I've... I, again, I, I think that citizenship is, to a certain extent, a accident of birth. But just sanguinous seems to limit that far more than just solely. And it seems to have more of a... Involve people who have more of a connection to the place they come from. And I think that just sanguinous, combined with the ability to naturalise... And, you know, a, a fairly well laid out program there would be the superior system. I don't think that ultimate, ultimately it's, it's an administrative question. And it, one can be more restrictive than the other, depending on how you want to go about it. If, if you have your, your sanguine is based not, rather, based not on ethnicity, but rather simply the, your, your, your parents and who had perhaps being naturalised, they weren't of the, the same ethnicity as the of, as the, the, the host country. So it's ultimately the government may decide when well, we're going to naturalise all these people. We're going to we're going to invite citizenship. We already have a citizen system, Gary, where if you come in and you're going to invest X million quid in the country, then they'll give you a passport. Now, I know I mentioned it in other circumstances, but again, it seems to me that it's applicable here. It's the old George Bernard Shaw. Madam, will you sleep with me for a million pounds? Oh, well, certainly, sir. Madam, will you sleep with me for five pounds? Sir, what do you think? I am a prostitute. Madam, we have already established that. Now we're simply discussing the price. If you're willing to sell your passports for money, well, you're a whore. Um, even if you're expensive passports after that. It's, once you've established the principle, the Irish government could tomorrow announce 
that they'd sell them for 50,000. Now, they wouldn't do that because the rest of Europe would be up in absolute fucking arms because effectively you'd be you'd be setting off your European citizenship for 50,000. But for 5 million, they don't care because, let's face it, if you have 5 million, you're, you're, you're the kind of people we want. Yeah, I think the way they sell that is they sort of just go, well, these people have made a valuable contribution to Irish society through their monetary means or otherwise. That, by the way, if you're interested, is called uh, Eustoni, I believe. So you've Solly, Sanguinus, and Doni. The law of the gift. That is a fantastic phrase, though. Eustoni, yeah. How did you acquire citizenship? Ah, by the law of the gift. <laughs> there is something Assassin's Creed about it, isn't there? <laughs> you must... You know that... What was that film, the one with... Um, is it uh, Kino, Kino Reeves, where he plays an assassin and they kill his dog? Oh, John Wick. John Wick, yeah. There's a bit of that about it, isn't there? The law of the gift. There is. You cannot... You you must accept this. No, I can't accept it. You know, if I accept it, I will be governed by the law of the gift. <laughs> I don't know. I always like the old Irish thing where if you, we, if you wanted to come in and be Irish and say, I'm Irish... Okay, fine. Like Daniel J. Lewis and people like that. Oh, I'm Irish. Fine. Good luck. You're Irish. Fine. But this is a different world and we have different realities and practicalities to deal with. Hopefully. Just just as a side note, John Wick was a really good film. The second one was passable. And the third one is a fucking disaster. It's not good. I mean, I know people who liked it. But it went from not a grounded, but like a... Like a moderately grounded, slightly odd thing in this like sort of fantasy world, into just total nonsense, total matrixy, like the third Matrix level of nonsense. The last one, I haven't seen the Matrix, so I, I can't comment on that. But it, if this one make any sense, it felt like a very high, shiny action, high concept movie written by people who normally wrote sitcom, not sitcoms, but soap operas. Hmm. Uh, and the the character twists and changes in it were just really unsatisfactory. But it had lots of guns and lots of bangs and, you know, so... And the first film is legitimately excellent. No, it was really good. I was surprised. I hadn't expected... It wasn't quite what I had expected, but it was very good indeed. What was I watching? I was looking at something else recently, where everybody got killed and I thought, God, this is depressing, relentlessly so. But it was very good. Oh, yeah. If anybody's out there is interested in in your mafia film, there's a, a series called Gomorrah, which is based on the Camorra in Italy. And it's, it, it's in, I'd say it's in Italian, but it's not really. I had to watch it with subtitles. It's mostly Neapolitan, but it's very good. But by the time you get to the third series, I think it's the third series, you're thinking, yeah, you're just going to kill everybody. It's just this cycle. But it's actually based a lot of the first series particularly and a bit of the second are based on real incidents and real stories and it's an insight into how fucking brutal that kind of stuff is not a nice story but very good worth a watch anyway we're now wandering all over the place so I think maybe it's time to hopefully this has informed you more fully about the law of blood the law of soil and the law of gifts the law of gift Yes, and uh, if it hasn't, well, that's not our fault. And, um, Continue sending me emails with the things you would have liked us to mention. And if you want to send him emails, send me Christmas presents. Um, I don't know if listen if you're interested, send Gary an email 
um, regarding maybe with lists of kinds of things I want, and I, I, I could, maybe I could put them up on Facebook, uh, like a list of places, or maybe we could have a, you know, like what do they put in America? What do those things they do for, for weddings? You have such a zest for whoring yourself out. God, Gary, if only. <laughs> Oh, God, be with the days when I could whore myself out. Anyway, on that note... We will see you on Wednesday. Bye-bye. All the best.